That's me. Check, check, check. We coming through? There we go. Yeah, that was good. Check one, two. All right. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Hey, how about you guys stand up? We're going to begin our service by worshiping, by singing together, worshiping our God because he's worthy of all of our praise. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Say, Lord, I come. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest, and without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I Where sin runs deep, where sin runs deep, 
Your grace is more Where grace is found Is where you are Oh, where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me Sing, Lord, I And every hour I need you, you're my one defense and my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. So teach my song. So teach my song to rise to you. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Cause Jesus, cause Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Oh Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. You're my one. Paid my debt and 
raise life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus. Say, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for that truth that You paid it all, God, that You paid it all on the cross, took all the sin that was mine, that was all of ours, God. You took it on your shoulders, and you paid it all, and you you purchased redemption for us, God, that we would uh, be able to be with you in heaven one day. And God, we thank you for that. We don't take it for granted, and we worship you. We praise you for that truth. Father, we love you. We pray that you'd speak to us tonight. We love you. We praise you. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. All right, if you want to open to Matthew chapter 13, it could be a good place, to, uh, good place to start here in just a few minutes. We're going to look at the idea of parables in the teaching of Jesus. So here in just a little bit, we'll get around to, uh, to that portion. If you picked up one of the half sheets of paper on the back table, that's for some notes for tonight. So I want you to be able to utilize that. As we have a time to pray for one another tonight and come together and worship like this, pray for Paul and Margie Lewis especially. Paul was having surgery, a second surgery this afternoon uh, to clear up another, another artery. And then they're trying, are they still trying to move Margie to Blanchard? Is that the, the plan to assisted living in, in Blanchard? And so... Uh, just pray for, if you've seen Paul recently on Sunday mornings, you know he just looks exhausted. Uh, a lot of that is caring, you know, for Margie, certainly, and then part of the reason he looks so exhausted is he just wasn't getting much blood in his system as well because of his heart, heart situation. So uh, we haven't had as many Werther's Originals passed around lately without having Paul around, so uh, you can always count on Paul passing out uh, passing out candy. He's such a sweet man. And uh, I think the thing that struck me the most about Paul is when you talk to him, the love and care and devotion he has to Margie and how that is just above everything uh, most, most important to him. And he is, uh, he's a gift to a young husband and dad like myself, what that looks like to to love your spouse for better or for worse, um, and so he's a he's a great example of that. But um, yeah, so pray for Paul and Margie, um, and then the uh, oh Carly Rains, Carly's mom passed away yesterday, and then Darren's mom is in the hospital as well. And so if you can pray for uh, pray for Carly and Darren Rains, and pray for their family. Um, I don't know if Jim made it by to see Darren's mom or not, but uh, he was going to do that. What else? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. What was his name? Daryl Johnson. Okay. If you all knew the Johnsons uh, that Naomi was referring to, yeah, I'm not sure who that, but thank you for saying that for people who have been around and know that name and that connection. 
Oh, also, continue to pray for James and Heather Mills. Uh, they got the report, a, a recent report back on James, and the report wasn't great. I mean, the, the cancer he's still fighting, the brain cancer is definitely there, and it's come back, and so they're taking some steps to try to deal with that right now, but uh, just their, their faith and their trying to uh, take care of those little girls right now and do everything they can on some clinical trials for James. Uh, so they've, they've been here through the middle of all this, just their, their commitment to the Lord and, and the role that Emmaus has played in loving their family. Uh, so if you guys know James and Heather, continue to pray for them, uh, continue to reach out to them for sure. Oh, sorry. Yes. This is one of your friends, Phyllis? Yeah. Well, I'm sure for Jack and Phyllis, today brings back its own set of memories with uh, September 11th and all the people that you all have cared for over, over the years. So, As we continue to prepare for the revival services, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday, September 22nd through the 25th. Just continue to pray, continue to reach out, invite people, people who maybe have not been uh, connected to the church or you know they've wandered away from the Lord, and, and as well, reach out to people who you know they need to hear the gospel, that will continue to pray, continue to pray for people, continue to reach out. Uh, we're going to have uh, gospel-centered messages, I know, from from Robert Griffin, and, and so continue to pray for him and his son Dale, who's going to be doing the music. Uh, that'll be a big, big opportunity for us, and so just continue to reach out to people. This Sunday morning, we're doing deacon ordination uh, for, for some new men who have called to serve as deacons here at our church, so we're excited about making that part of our, of our Sunday morning worship service, so be in, be in prayer. I hope you can be part, be part of that as well. Um, one other thing I want to ask your, uh, ask your prayer for, and this, it doesn't feel like immediately it affects us directly, but it does, in, it does in certain ways. Some of you may know that I'm on the search committee for the new president at Oklahoma Baptist University, and so we have an important meeting on Friday where we're going over several of the, several of the candidates and, and things like that, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a really hard meeting, and Definitely feeling the, the weight of that decision, the stress of that decision, but, but seeking the Lord's guidance on that. So just continue to pray for OBU. Uh, we're in a unique situation as Oklahoma Baptists where we have a school that's purposely connected to us as Oklahoma Baptist churches. And so there's a lot of weight in making sure we continue to seek the Lord's guidance on that and that that's a healthy school where we can send students for not only ministry training, but training in all kinds of different fields from a Christian perspective. Uh, so the, uh, uh, that, that search committee, we're right in the middle of, of some really important decisions. Did anybody here, who went to OBU here? Anybody go to OBU? Yeah, there we go. A few OBU people here, so yeah, so continue to pray. But it, it does affect us, though, uh, as a church, and I hope we see uh, several students end up at OBU in the... Uh, in the days to come, It'd be a great opportunity. All right, let's spend a few minutes, uh, a few minutes praying together, and we'll do we'll do some Bible study. Here, just just for a second, as we're thinking about the revival, let me give you a chance right where you are to pray specifically for somebody you know who is not a follower of Jesus, let's just all stop together and pray for the salvation of people in our lives. Pray that the Lord would bring uh, us to share the gospel, but, but draw them to salvation. So let's just stop for a minute and each do that individually, praying for, praying for salvation for people in our lives.
Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And God, we want to be able to come together and we want to pray for situations that, that we're facing. God, praying that your power and hope would be shown in these uh, situations where, where people are facing sickness and suffering. But God, we pray that through that, people would be drawn to you, that they'd be drawn to repentance, they'd be drawn to put their faith in Christ as the true source of hope beyond sickness and death. So God, we do pray for physical healing in these situations that have been mentioned. And God, we pray that in that, they would also see your goodness and they would see your presence and they would see your love at work. God, help us to speak the gospel to the people you've placed around us. God, I pray for the people in my neighborhood that we're seeking to share with. God, we pray for people that would come to the revival. God, we pray that you would use us in all kinds of different ways to be able to share your hope and love with the world around us. God, thank you for OBU. Thank you for the, what that place means to me and to my family, to so many different uh, people, God, to people throughout the, the world as one of the greatest senders of international missionaries anywhere in the world. So God, we thank you for the missionaries that have gone out from OBU. God, we pray for this search process for the next president. It's something that can seem distant from us here at Emmaus, but it is a, such, a big, um, such a big moment for our state, for Oklahoma Baptists, and what that means for the years ahead. And God, we pray for wisdom and direction about making that selection. God, guide us uh, to, to see your spirit at work in that process, and that it would be good for the advancement of the kingdom here and, and as we pray around the world. God, thank you for the people tonight who are serving with kids and youth. God, thank you for the preparations that are happening for musical worship and for mission trips coming up. God, we know we're in this together as a church family. And we are unified because of our hope in you. And we're unified because of our desire to see that hope go to people around us. So God, keep us focused on the main things. And uh, use tonight, this time, of, this time of Bible study, to draw us closer to you and, and make us more aware of your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one other miniature announcement, but it is something I forgot to say. Uh, David is restarting choir practice, and instead of doing a Wednesday night option, he's going to try for a Sunday afternoon option. So Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, if you're interested in being part of choir, uh, he's going to get that started back up. So as I said in my email today, if you're already humming Christmas music in September, you should be in choir on, on Sunday afternoon at, at 4 o'clock. So Definitely, if you can be a part of that. He's trying to do it at four, so you can go and be part of your home group. If you have a home group, or if you're going to pass out uh, revival invitation, whatever it is, that, that you can do that. So, Sunday at four o'clock. Okay, let's look here at Matthew chapter 13. And what you get in Matthew chapter 13, which we're going to focus Sunday morning on the actual parable of the sower, but I want to show you this as tonight focusing on just what it means to read and study parables in general. Um, so what you get at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13 is this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. Now we're going to talk about the meaning of that parable on Sunday morning, but look what happens immediately next in verse 10. So the disciples came to him in verse 10 and said, Why do you speak to them 
in parables. So the disciples are wondering, what's going on here? Why would you speak in, in this way? Now, Matthew is made up of five different teaching sections. So when you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, you get a teaching section and then action. Teaching section and then action. And there's five of those teaching sections almost certainly meant to correspond to the five books of the Torah, the five, first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the law. So you have five books of the law that begin the Old Testament, and then Matthew begins the New Testament with five teaching sections that make up Jesus' teaching. You also think about the connection with the book of Psalms that's divided into five books. You have 150 books in Psalms, but it's actually divided into kind of five subsections. And all of that's meant to reflect God's law given to the people and how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that. So this is the third teaching section in Matthew when you get to this point. You had the Sermon on the Mount, five through seven, you had the missions sending section in chapter 10, where Jesus is sending out the disciples on their mission. And then this is the third section. This is about how people respond to the kingdom. And what you get in chapter 13 is this series of parables. And so the disciples come up in verse 10 and said, hey, why do you speak to them in parables? So a good question for us to ask is, what are parables and why would Jesus use these parables? Uh, now, if you happen to be a part of a not-to-be-named Sunday school class that is also <laughs> studying the parables at the same time, uh, you just keep doing you, uh, keep studying this. We're going to try to do it alongside you. I know at least one of our Sunday school classes is in the middle of a parable study, so uh, let's, we're, you're already very much aware that I am not nor ever will be as great as R.C. Sproul. So you let R.C. Sproul teach you the parables. I'm going to do my own thing uh, tonight and, and just do, do what I can. So not as great as Michael Staten. I'm definitely not as great as R.C. Sproul. So I'm just going to do my own thing, uh, my own thing tonight. On your little note sheet, at the top, I put a little section called the power of stories. We know that there is something about when you present information in story form versus just saying it propositionally, just laying out statements. It's one thing to be given statements. It's another thing to be given a story. There's something about stories that hit us at an emotional, visceral level in a way that just statements or laws never would. And so when Jesus is communicating, one of the ways that he communicates is he communicates with a story and he often communicates in a way that at the end of the story, you can tell he's calling for a response. Now, there's been discussion over the years about what's the connection between something like the parables of Jesus and maybe take something like Aesop's fables. Aesop is a figure from about 600 BC. Uh, he was known to be a slave who was a prominent storyteller. There's even some connections that Aesop may have been, even though he was centered in Greece as a slave, he may have been connected to Ethiopia. Some of the things that we have about Aesop is that he had dark skin, and there's even some tracing him back to Ethiopia, but he was this well-known story compiler and storyteller. And so Aesop's fables, you get things like the tortoise and the hare, or the... Uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, or any number of these different stories that have been perpetuated over the years are, are these fables. Now the question is, what's the difference between something like Aesop's fables and something like Jesus' parables? Where do, where do you connect those together? On your little note sheet there, I put that fables are normally moralistic stories that use non-human characters in fantasy scenes. So in other words, with a fable, you're trying to teach a life lesson. You're trying to teach a moral lesson. And so you have the rabbit that runs out really fast in front of the uh, tortoise, and then the tortoise catches up, and you find out you know, that the tortoise wins the race, and the kids are supposed to learn a lesson about slow and steady wins the race. It's that type of idea. So these fables are meant to be understood in this way. Parables, however, are generally religious in nature, and they usually involve human characters, usually, not always, but usually involve human characters rooted in realistic situations. So when Jesus is teaching these parables, this is so important on this, 
He is not just teaching moral lessons. This is so important to get. When Jesus is teaching these parables, we find over and over and over again, they are about the kingdom of heaven. They are about the kingdom of God. They are about what it means to respond to him. And so you don't read the parables of scripture and say, and now what do I do to be a better person? That's a wrong understanding about how parable language works. The parables are given to us in these contexts that we say, you know what, I can identify with that. I could understand that. A, a farmer sowing seed, I can resonate with that. And then you find out it was actually meant to hook you and to say, who do you believe Jesus is? And what do you believe about the kingdom of heaven? And how do you respond to that? So when we think about fables and those type of stories, it's here's a story to help a kid make a better decision in life and live a moral life. Again, that has its place. When you think about the parables, it's much more about and who do I believe Jesus to be? How do I fit into the kingdom of heaven? It's that type of distinction. Now we realize that stories remain powerful in our contemporary world, and so we're always trying to think about how do we use stories to draw people to a place of response, to encounter the kingdom of heaven? I haven't seen it yet, but how many of you have seen Overcomer, the, the new movie? Yeah, lots of you. And many of you have told me how, how incredible it is. Uh, if you just laid that out in a bullet point form and said, hey, here are some lessons from the movie Overcomer, and you passed it out on a sheet of paper with bullet points, you know, that's okay. There's a place for that. But when you see a movie and you get caught up in a story and you sense yourself trying to identify with the characters and respond to it, that carries a whole other level of response than if somebody just gives you a piece of paper and says, here are 10 statements about what this movie is about. It's not the same as watching the movie. The parables of Jesus work the same way. You kind of have to fit yourself into that story and say, where do I fit? How do I respond? How does this resonate with me? You have to feel it almost at, a, at an emotional level. So let's talk about parables for a second. In the Old Testament, the word for parable is this word, mashal. Um, it's a very broad word. It can mean parable, metaphor, allegory, fable, proverb, revelation, riddle, symbol, example, jest, even byword, like bad word. It can, it can even fit into that category. Here's the main thing you need to know. This type of word, all it means is that the meaning doesn't reside on the surface. You've got to dig below the word to get the meaning, or you have to dig below the proverb, or dig below the story. So this type of presentation means that it's not delivered in a straightforward way. The meaning lies below whatever is presented, or behind whatever is presented. When you see examples of like this in, in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 4 said that God gave Solomon wisdom, and understanding beyond measure. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his psalms were 1,005. That word in 1 Kings 4 for proverbs is the same word that's translated parable, riddle, symbol, byword. All of those are just the same word in Hebrew. So Solomon gave, apparently, 3,000 of these different proverbs or these parable sayings. Look, however, at the most famous parable in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you'll turn with me there in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to get, um, we're going to look at what is probably the most famous parable story in the Old Testament. And you may say, well, it's not really coming to me right now. What's it going to take? When you hear it, you're going to realize, hey, I do know this story. Um, so 2 Samuel, when you get back there, it's after Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you get into the first and second Samuel. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This parable, this story, comes immediately after the David and Bathsheba story. And that's important because you're going to see what's happening here. But it's after David's sin with Bathsheba. Chapter 12, verse 1, 2 Samuel. 
And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, adultery is wrong. No. <laughs> Actually, he doesn't say that, does he? He does not say adultery is wrong. Is adultery wrong? Yes. Is rape wrong? Yes, which is probably more accurately describes what, what David did. So you have this, but he doesn't just say that. What does he say? He said, hey, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You're the man. You are the man. Uh, one of the most striking phrases in the Old Testament right there. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then you go down a little bit toward uh, verse 13. And it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognizes his sin. And Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So 2 Samuel 12, you get a parable. You get a story and Nathan tells it in a way that he gets exactly the reaction he wants from David. <laughs> David says, whoever that guy is deserves to die. And then he realizes quickly, that's actually a story about me. You see the connection with the New Testament. Jesus oftentimes will tell stories. And the Pharisees pretty quickly pick up, oh man, that story was actually about us. And how does it make them feel? It makes them feel angry. Because they start to realize these stories are about us. Except, here's the key, in David's situation, he was angry, then he was convicted, then he was led to repentance. In the Pharisees' situation, they're angry that the parable is about them, but what does it lead to on their account? It leads to a hardening of their heart. It leads to an utter rejection of who Jesus is. So you can see in these two examples how a parable can draw you to repentance can draw you back to the Lord, or a parable also has the ability to harden a heart and push somebody further away. And that's going to be important in a few minutes when we get to, uh, to this description. Look at one other place, just to see another example in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, which to get to Ezekiel, you've got to go to Psalms, then start turning toward Isaiah, then go to Jeremiah, then your next big book after Lamentations is going to be Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 17, I want to show you another parable, another place that this shows up in the, uh, in the Old Testament. So Ezekiel chapter 17. If you start to read Ezekiel at some point, you realize there are some very strange images in, uh, in, in Ezekiel. So some of it, you, you read it and you read it again and read it again and think, I have no idea what that means. It seems important. I know it's the word of God, but there is some strange imagery. Ezekiel 17, though, is a little bit easier to uh, grasp onto. Not a lot, but a little bit. So here's what it says. Ezekiel 17. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Other translations in verse 2, ESV does riddle 
and parable as the parallel words in verse 2. What do the other translations do there in verse 2? Is it always riddle and parable? Which, which word is used for, the second word is allegory? First word is allegory. Interesting. What's the second word? Okay. So you can see that idea of an allegory, a story in which elements of the story stand in for something else, that, that type of idea. So here's what it says. So speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile soil. Now, watch and see if this starts to sound, sound familiar based on Matthew 13. So he planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant, wa- abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out bows or boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil. This is verse 8. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong man or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted, but will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Now the reason that parable is so interesting, Ezekiel 17, is it sounds a lot like the parable we're going to see in Matthew chapter 13 with the sower and the seed. So Sunday morning when we're thinking about Matthew chapter 13 in this parable, Remember Ezekiel 17 back here in, in the background. This parable in Ezekiel 17, it's about when Nebuchadnezzar came in to Jerusalem and began to take over. And there was a king there named Zedekiah who panicked and called for the Egyptians to come and help him. And it actually got him in more trouble. And it ultimately resulted in the temple and the city of Jerusalem being destroyed and the people being taken away. And so it's a parable about that, but it fits in so closely with what you see in Matthew 13 about how people respond to God's work in their life, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Okay, go back to your uh, note sheet just for a minute here. Outside of the Old Testament, so outside of the 39 books of the Old Testament as, as we receive it as God's word, you have all kinds, hundreds of Jewish parables that were spread around by rabbis and teachers. Here's the interesting thing. Of all the Jewish parables, many of which find similarities in the New Testament, the one that you never find a similarity to outside the scriptures is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is striking because it says that nowhere... Did any rabbi ever imagine a Samaritan coming by and doing a work that a Levite and a priest would not do? So the one parable you don't find paralleled anywhere else is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I think speaks a lot to the reason Jesus uses the parables and and the effect that they have. In the New Testament, the Greek word is, is this word parabole, or you can see even like the word parabola. If you're a math person, you can kind of see where that fits in there. It, it just means to sit beside or to be a comparison to someone. And, and you start to see a shift in the New Testament. It's not just short statements, but it becomes short story form, kind of what you find in 2 Samuel, what you find in Ezekiel 17, less the book of Proverbs and more story form when you get to the, to the New Testament, the way the parables are used. So here's the question. How do you interpret the parables when you find them in the New Testament. How do we become good readers of parables? There's been a controversy throughout much of Christian history about what you do with these parables that you find in in the Bible. 
One strategy is a strategy called allegory. Um, you guys, uh, with certain translation, allegory even showed up earlier in that Ezekiel 17 connection. Allegory, when taken to its fullest extreme, you start to find a meaning in every single element of the story. So turn your little paper over, look at the back, and look down at the very bottom of the back of your note sheet. This is a famous allegorical, interp allegorical interpretation of the Good Samaritan. So best you can remember in your head the story of the Good Samaritan and the way that it works, here's the allegorical interpretation. So the man who was going down is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise, and Jericho stands for the world. The robbers are hostile, evil powers. The priest stands for the law. The Levite stands for the prophets, and the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds on the man are disobedience. The beast, or the donkey that carries him, uh, is the Lord's body, and the inn where he is taken is the church. The two denarii that are paid, they stand for the father and the son, the manager of the stable is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted, and the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. There you go. Yeah, so uh, is that exactly what every element of the Good Samaritan parable means? Probably not. <laughs> now, before we make fun of that interpretation too much, like, we're guilty of sometimes getting pretty close to that in the way that we read Scripture. And so, how do you handle this? Well, what happened was you had this allegorical approach to interpretation. You don't need me to tell you this, but the way theology works and life in general works is it works on a pendulum. So, something over here gets taken to an extreme, and you know what happened? The pendulum goes all the way over here to this other side. And so, what happened when interpretation was, it went from this allegorical extreme, and it went over to another extreme where these scholars started to say, every parable only has one point. So, every parable has one point. And they pushed in seminaries, and they pushed in all these scholarly papers about how every parable has, has one point which works great until you read Matthew 13 and Jesus' explanation of the parable, and he starts to make more than one point when he's explaining what these parables are, are all about. And this one-point strategy where it got really bad was it wasn't just one point, but it was one moral point, one way that we should live as a result of, what does that start to sound like? It sounds like the fables that we talked about earlier. So you went from this allegorical, everything stands for something, to this one point, it's just a story meant to teach you one thing about how you should live your life. Mercifully, the pendulum in recent years has kind of come back to the middle. Um, and it's come back to the middle through some really good conservative scholars who have done a lot of research and work on the issue of parables, saying, hey, there's a way that we can approach these. There's a way we can think about these. And so here at the bottom of your front side of the paper is just a couple of things to, to be aware of as we talk about parables. Be aware of the context, and, and context meaning two things. The ancient cultural context, in other words, when you hear about a farmer sowing seed, don't think about their latest type of machinery. <laughs> You've got to think about it as they would have thought about sowing seed. So it, it needs to have made sense in an ancient culture. Also, literary context, it matters where parables are located in the Gospels because oftentimes that will give you a clue to what they mean. None more so than Matthew 13, but it'll give you a clue to what they mean. Pay attention to the characters. The characters are often the keys to the points of the parable. So notice who they represent, what they do, how they respond. The most famous example of this is the prodigal son parable. What's the problem with knowing it as the prodigal son parable? You almost miss the most important character in the story, who is the older brother. Who would be the most important character in the story were it not for the father. So you have the father, the older brother, and the prodigal son. If you just think of it as the prodigal son and you miss those other characters, in some ways you miss the force of the parable. So notice the characters. Pay attention to the characters. Also just pay attention to content. 
Parables tend to fall in three groupings. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, or it's meant to teach you something about God's character. You can almost take every parable, and it's either going to be one or a combination of those. What does this teach me about the kingdom of God? What does it teach me about being a follower of Jesus? What does it teach me about God's character? If you'll just kind of keep those three in your mind, it will fill in so many gaps when we're reading, reading the parables. And then you're trying to get at the purpose for the parable. Usually the parables call for or they even shock us into a response to the kingdom and to Jesus. And parables divide those who follow Jesus from those who would not. Parables tend to have two, two purposes. Either they're concealing something, they're driving a group away, or they're revealing something. They're pushing the followers of Jesus ahead. How do we know this? Go back to Matthew 13 in our last eight or ten minutes together here. So we're back to Matthew 13. You can turn over the back of your note sheet if you want to look at a couple of bullet points, but mainly we're just going to talk through these verses for a couple of minutes and, and wrap up. So back in Matthew chapter 13, go back to verse 10. So remember, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning, why do you speak to the crowd in parables? Verse 11, Jesus answered them, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, to the crowds, it has not been given to know these secrets. Now, if that sounds like a hard saying, it's because it is. It's because it's a very difficult saying about the way that the parables are meant to work. When you see that word secrets, it's, it's the Greek word mystery. This idea that something that cannot be seen with human eyes, that's the key. It's a something, a secret, a mystery that we cannot get at with human intellect. You didn't discover the meaning of the kingdom of God without him revealing that to you. It has to be revealed from God. It's not able to be reached with human power. And so he says, to you has been given the secrets, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the idea of compounding spiritual interests. The more you humbly receive the things of the kingdom of God, the more you're able to understand that. Conversely, the more you grow hard to the things of God, the less you're able to want to do anything with that. Life application, this is the danger of the person that says, I'll get right with the Lord after X, Y, and Z. What's the problem with that? The more you resist the things of the Lord, the harder your heart grows. It's a dangerous thing to say, I'll get right with the Lord after I do X, Y, and Z. Because during X, Y, and Z, your heart is growing hard to the things of the Lord, which you find here. Um, and, and so let that just sink in as being one of those great spiritual truths. But verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand? They refuse to receive the message of, of the kingdom, and, and so they, they grow cold and hard to the things of, of, of the Lord. Verse 14, indeed in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Imagine that. The book of Matthew talks about the fulfillment of an Isaiah prophecy. <laughs> like we haven't seen this already. This has been over and over and over in Isaiah. What's the prophecy this time? Well, this is after Isaiah has this profound experience in Isaiah chapter 6 with the Lord. And he says, here I am, send me. And God says, good, go talk to a bunch of people that don't want to listen to you. Uh, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. There's a pattern in the Old Testament of the people hardening their hearts against the Lord. And Jesus is telling the people, you're living in the middle of that now with my coming. But, verse 16, 
Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hearing it, remember in Scripture, is not just that it goes in your ears, it's that you do something with it, that you respond. You respond in faith and you respond in obedience. Uh, I have an incredible superpower that you may not uh, be aware of. I have the ability to hear what my wife says even when she thinks that I'm not listening. So one of our great moments at home is she will say something. I won't respond, and she'll say, did you not hear me? And then I have my moment to say exactly what she said, and it just drives her crazy every time. Now, does that make me a good husband? Absolutely not, it doesn't. Like, it makes me a terrible husband. Um, if I really heard what she said, I would have responded in love and, and, and engaged with what she said. Instead, I act like I didn't hear, but I can repeat back every word. You think this isn't true, ask her, and she, uh, she will confirm that that. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying it's a superpower that has gotten me out of trouble a couple of times and gotten me into trouble many times. But... To hear something is not just to be able to repeat it back, not just that it goes in your ears. Who could do this well? The Pharisees. They could repeat the words back. They heard the words, but it never took root in their life. There was never any response of faith and obedience. Okay, we're almost out of time. Jump forward to verse 34. Let's catch the other purpose of parables in 34 and 35, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, 13, 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. You're like, well, I can imagine Jesus saying a few things about parables. It seems to be more the purpose of a parable. In other words, he rarely spoke directly about things because of the way that people responded and the purpose of his teaching. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, what's going to be mentioned here is a verse from Psalms. You might have thought Isaiah because it's been, in fact, there are some ancient manuscripts where the scribe scribbled in Isaiah's name in 1335 because he thought surely it was Isaiah. It wasn't. It was Asaph in a psalm. Uh, but here's what it says. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. One purpose of the parables is that they begin to harden people against the things of God. Another purpose of the parable is that they begin to reveal how the kingdom of God works. What's the difference? It's whether or not we hear. It's whether or not we hear and receive and humbly respond to the word of God, which is a good reminder for every one of us because after you've been around church, been around scripture for a while, it's easy just to hear it with your ears and there's no heart response. There's no faith response. There's no obedience to us. And, and so what we're reminded in the parables is when you hear, how do you hear? Hopefully not like Owen with his wife, but, but hopefully with a heart of humility and, and faith and obedience to the word of God. All right, let's wrap up there and we'll actually do the parable uh, Sunday morning on, on Matthew 13. So God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, scriptures like this that are uh, hard passages that get, a, get our attention. God, let us remember the book of James, that we would not be people who merely hear the word, but we would be people who do what it says. Let us not become hard toward the things of your kingdom, toward your word. God, we pray a special prayer of mercy and hope for those in our lives who have the attitude that one day I'll get right with God. Father, we pray that you would soften their hearts. God, we pray that they would receive your word with humility and that they would know how good your kingdom is. God, every one of us tonight, right now, God, let us commit that we will trust that your word is good and right and powerful and brings life. So God, make us that kind of church tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
All right, thank you all for being here. God bless you.